Hi, this is James. Just before we start, I wanted to remind you that you can read our articles, explore more podcasts, and learn about our online personal and management development programs and workshops by visiting our website, www.worldofwork.io. All right, on to the podcast. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. Yay. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good, thanks. Uh, life is pretty good at the minute. Controversial. I'm doing the check-in before yeah, we introduce I, the episode. I, I was like I all a fluster when you let did me, that. Let me reverse that. So today we are talking uh, in another episode of our Inclusion and Diversity series. That's right. And we're going to be talking to uh, an old colleague of mine yeah. who also happens to be a four-time Olympian. That's pretty special, isn't it? Just drop that <laughs> Just in there. Just drop that in. Uh, so Donna Fraser, who uh, is a... Uh, British sprinter, yeah. or was a well, is still a British sprinter, but was a very quick British sprinter, um, is now uh, a very experienced member of staff in the equality, diversity, and inclusion role, main role at UK Athletics. Yeah. Um, having done that role at a British utility company, so she's going to share her experiences. Yeah, that's exciting, right? It's it's a great um, sort of build on some of the other inclusion and diversity stuff we've we've been speaking about. A great insight into what it takes to work in the role, a great insight into some of the changes that you can make through that type of role. So it's pretty exciting. I think yeah. I said exciting a lot there, didn't I? Well, I'm quite excited just because I haven't seen Donna for a while yeah. and um, she's one of the loveliest people I know. But she's also not shy at sharing her opinion, in my yeah. experience. So uh, I'm looking forward to a good conversation. But before we do that, how are you? Well, inspired by um, by reference to Donna's sporting prowess there, I think I'm going to talk about my own. So... I've been out running more and more, which is great. Um, I don't know if I said, I might have said at some point, um, my girlfriend's got an objective to run 50 half marathons by the time she's 50, and we're, we're getting there, right? I mean, we're making good progress, but I've been kind of nudged along, and I think I might try and do 40 by the time I'm 40, which gives me another 18 months, something like that. I've just realized I don't even know, well, I do now, but I didn't yeah, even know how yeah, old you yeah, were. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm That's 38. That's interesting. So I've got um, 18 months and about another 20 to do, something like that. So a bit more than one a month, and I think I can get there. I think you can do that. As so long as you don't get sick or injured. Yeah, well, I, I know. And I'm a, I'm a little bit of both at the minute, but that's okay. I must power up, be inspired by Donna and her achievements to, to reach oh, my Oh, don't. She's master. annoyingly inspiring. When I worked <laughs> with her, when I worked with her she'd, um, she was doing a project for me at one point, and she uh, she FaceTimed into this project, and she was like, oh, I'm just coming off the running track. And I was like, oh, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> She's very disciplined. Yeah. Good. Well, should we jump into the conversation? Let's. So uh, without further ado, uh, we're going to go into our conversation with Donna. But just before we do, uh, a quick terminology boost. Uh, We talk quite a lot about NGBs in this conversation, and that is a national governing body of sport uh, here in Britain. Cool. All right, let's get into the conversation. So we are now here today with a very special guest. We've got Donna Fraser, uh, Olympian and someone who now works at UK Athletics. Uh, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about inclusion and diversity just along with this series. So, Donna, would you like to say hello to our audience and tell them a little bit about you and your experience? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. Um, first and foremost, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be talking to Jane, a longtime friend as well. So all good. Talking about EDI is a passion of mine, um, as you've mentioned and alluded to. My background is athletics, four times Olympian. Um, I've worked alongside my athletics career, started off at EDF Energy, and my passion for EDI 
um, literally blossomed from there when I chaired the BAME network there for two years. Um, it wasn't something that I envisaged I'd get involved in, but for me as an individual, helping people and making a difference is, is a passion of mine. And that's pretty much what EDNI is all about, making a difference. So that's where my passion for EDNI developed. Uh, and now I'm in, I've got the best of both worlds doing EDNI as well as in a sport that I love. So that's what I do. Wow, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, I feel quite privileged. I forgot about the four. Yeah, <laughs> I, I lie. I totally never forget that. Well, it's only four more than me. I mean, let's be honest, right? Oh, bless you. <laughs> so for the whole series, we've been asking our guests um, to start by just telling us a little bit about what uh, equality, diversion, uh, uh, diversity and inclusion means to them personally. So it'd be great to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I always say that you can't have one without the other. They they come as a, as a family, as it were. Equality speaks for itself. It's about opportunities and having equal opportunities to, to explore whatever avenues you want. Um, inclusion is the big one for me. Um, and the most important one, I would say, inclusion speaks for itself again. It's about being involved. It's being feeling valued and being part of a process. And, and in terms of organisations, it's being part of that that decision making process and 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 bringing people in. Um, diversity is around embracing difference and treating people basically as as you want to be treated with respect and valuing people's views. And you know, living in in the UK, we're extremely diverse and getting more and more diverse. And this is why. EDNI conversations are so important as the world is changing. Yeah, and you mentioned there that they the they are important, but I in my experience sometimes it's not always that easy to get organizations to understand just how important they are. Um Absolutely. sometimes you hear phrases like tick box, don't you? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um why do you think it should matter to organizations? It makes business sense for number one. And as you say, um, the whole EDI topic can be quite fearful for some. I think when you know, when I first started at UKA, there there was uh, a nervousness, you know, what is Donna gonna come in and, and do to us? What have we done so wrong? And it's not about that, it's about holding up the mirror and seeing how can we be better. And you're so right. A lot of organisations think that it, it is a tick box exercise and it shouldn't be. It should be part and parcel of how the organisation practices and runs on a day to day basis. And that's not just down to one person. It's not just down to me as the equality, diversity, engagement lead. It's everyone's responsibility to push that agenda and shouldn't be a standalone agenda item. It should be weaved completely through the practices and the policies of any organisation. I think the the fear comes into it because you automatically think around race uh, and gender and it is broader than that. We all know what the nine protective characteristics are and it, it's about people. In essence, that's all it's about is making people feel valued, involved, part of an organisation, which will help in turn um, the organisation thrive. You know, and, and I say those buzzwords, it is about money, it is about bringing more customers in, it is about partnerships and sponsors in, in our case. It, it, it's, it makes business sense, absolutely. And if we think about where we are at the minute and we think about the different organisations that you work with, how far along the journey do you think they are to, to being really inclusive and diverse? 
we're a long way off, I'll be honest. Um, I can only speak for UK Athletics. I think the first positive step they made was to employ someone to take on the role as the EDNI lead. They never had someone before. So the positive thing is they recognised they needed someone to come in and really focus on it and help educate the organisation and why it's important and move forward. But we are a long way off. As a nation, we're a long way off. But if you were to look 10 years ago, we're much further on than we were 10 years ago. So EDNI doesn't happen overnight. It will take time. And it's about open, honest conversations and really putting yourselves out there and saying, we will do. It's not a, a nice to have. It's a must. It's funny, sorry, I'm, smi- I'm smiling at James, which obviously you can't see because you're not in the room. But um, the reason is we had a conversation earlier in the series and we talked a lot about nice-to-haves versus, yeah. you know, just committing to getting something done and then going on the journey together, even if you're not sure yeah. how it's going to unfold. And I think, I think particularly with small and medium-sized organisations, that's sometimes a little bit of a leap of faith is required Absolutely. to just move forward. And that's probably my athletics background because, you know, we live on a day by day. Obviously, you can do all the planning you like and I'm probably one to to have experienced that, all the planning and training. And then on the day, if you don't perform, you know, you've just got to put yourselves on the line. You you just make one small change compared to what you do it and it could work out or it couldn't work out, but you won't know until you try. Yeah. You've got to kind of embrace that, don't you, and, and give Absolutely. it a go. I've never Absolutely. thought of it like that, but that makes it makes a lot of sense because that is that's what you see athletes do every day. Yep, definitely. It's my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, broadening the conversation up, we, we've talked a fair bit uh, about the importance of, of this type of work within organizations, and, and you sort of alluded to making business sense and things like that. If we think about it at a societal level, why do you think this stuff's important at a broader level? It's it's really interesting that you say that because, you know, coming into a small organisation from what I've come from, um, I mean, EDF Energy had 15,000 employees um, within within UK. It's, it's a small fraction. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's about education. I sometimes think that people just don't get it. Uh-huh. Um, and if you're not, a, and I say this lightly, if you're not a people person, you just get on your day-to-day business, you will never know what that other person who sat next to you probably is experiencing. Yeah. So, again, I go back to the power of conversation. I say this time and time again, until you open yourselves up and have those open conversations, you can't, you can't make informed decisions and that could be anything that could be in business that could be whether you choose to sit next to someone who's dressed in complete head to toe in yellow on the bus you know and you don't know the backgrounds of of individual until you have those conversations and not making those automatic assumptions and yes I say business sense and that's around money but it's about society in general it's accepting people for who they are understanding their background so you can can make those informed decisions uh, on a day-to-day basis. So it is absolutely a wider conversation. And how important do you think empathy is in it? Is it is that relevant for this? Huge. Empathy is huge. Um, again, what I've said in terms of understanding people and taking the time to understand people. And, you know, there are some, and we, we have to accept that, there's a lot of ignorant people out there. We know that. And, again, that's... Ex- 
that's embracing difference. Not everyone can be the same. Yeah. Um, but from a positive perspective, it is embracing difference. And for me, I, I just think it's hard to change people's mindsets. It absolutely is. But we have to probably embrace that and say, well, okay, well, that person is not going to change. That's probably one person out of a thousand that I'm not going to have an impact on. But if I can impact three people positively, that's more than that one individual. Yeah. Um, and then that will filter through. And, and this is why it's so important to have that buy-in in organizations from the top down. I can do all the groundwork at, in my organization at the bottom, but if I haven't got the buy-in from leadership, I'm fighting a losing battle and it's about leading by example. When, when you were talking about it, you talked about, you know, getting people to um, sort of understand and have that sort of change in mindset. When you're working with people, do you, do you find that that change in mindset is a gradual process or do you think it, it's like a light bulb moment or is it a mixture? It's absolutely a mixture. Um, you know, every, again, everyone is different and will receive information differently and at different times. So it, it's going at a pace and making people feel comfortable about talking about EDI. Mm. You know, it, it, when you, like I said earlier, you know, it, there is that immediate fear. You, when you don't have an understanding of it, you automatically put those barriers up and think, oh my gosh, what's this about? Yeah. So it does take time for some. And then there's others that think, you know what, I get it. But it's fine, it's navigating a way that, um, people will pick up the information so approaches will be different mm -hmm. you know you, you could do workshops you could just have um, real innovative um, sessions where you're just out walking you know it could be anything but you're having those conversations and you build from there yeah and if you're you know at a sort of practical level if you're looking to um, deliver some sort of change in a space or change the culture or mindset of an organization and things like that. Do, do you start with data? Do you start with speaking to people? How do you work out where you want to start your focus and, and build up your initiatives? Uh, and that's the beauty of it. Um, not at one size fits all. Uh -huh. It depends on your own environment. And for me, when I started at UKA, for me, it was about having conversations with the people that work there and understanding what the culture is. If I had data, I could have come out with a completely different outlook. Nothing beats conversation and hearing yeah. that real talk. Yeah. And um, from that, I was able to develop some real quick initiatives that made a difference straight away. And it can be different in a larger organization where you would need that data just to understand what the demographics of the organization looks like. But it's exploring all different avenues and, and understanding what, that organization is about rather than just saying okay well it worked here well it should work in this organization yeah. and that's not always the case yeah you can't really translate it uh you know lift and drop to another organization no absolutely not there was something you said earlier but i, I quite liked when you were talking about um you know bringing bringing this sort of mindset to life for people and and my takeaway from that was it that you almost need to be inclusive to the skeptics as well if that makes sense sort of yes your approach needs to include all these people and that's sometimes a bit of a hard thing to do I guess it certainly is um and you know they're, they're probably my personality I don't give in that easily so I will keep going and going and going and trying different ways to to really get them on board but at the same time I have to 
accept that I may not get through to that person yeah. uh, and just leave as is and maybe in time maybe not in my lifetime that they will eventually start to understand it but I've planted some kind of seed and I know yeah. there's probably a split second that they've thought about it and then probably gone back to their their usual ways but I think it's important to still try um, and have that support network around you to do that yeah do you think it's challenging sometimes for people who work in this space to stay motivated. Is that is that a big a big part of the challenge, or are there other things that are much more challenging within the role? To stay motivated, I think this is where creativity comes into it. And again, going back to that diversity definition, is for me within my organisation now, I'm the one person that's leading on EDI. But what I've done is developed an ED&I advocate group, which is made up of staff members. So they're my eyes and ears. So then that message of what we're trying to achieve as an organization is wider spread. I can't do it on my own, which is why I say it's the responsibility of everyone to drive this agenda. And in all honesty, if if um, everything is fine and dandy at UK, then I'm making myself redundant. And I, that's my that's my goal is to make myself redundant because they won't need me anymore to drive the agenda because everything's just flowing. It's a great culture. Everyone's not happy all the time because that's unrealistic, but you know, it's where we want to be. And for me, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a long journey, absolutely a long journey. And you need patience. You need people back in, you need people to be passionate, like with anything it's not, again, going back, a tick box exercise. It can't be. It's got to be authentic. And the reasons why you're doing it is fully understood. And and when sort of exploring what it's like to work in that space, what sort of skills like are, are important? Are there practical skills that people who might want to work in this space would benefit from having? Or is it mindset? Or, or what is it that prepares people for success, I guess? People yeah. skills. It's people skills. It's it's um, It definitely is down to that. And I guess that's why Edie and I sits under HR. Mm-hmm. It's about valuing difference. It's about valuing individuals. It's bringing people with you as opposed to pushing them or pulling them. Um, and, and this is why I'm really proud of the group that I've developed because it's a two-way thing you know like so many organizations do have employee networks but we're not big enough to have an employee network so we've combined everything but it's a chance for them to have a voice and can see that they are doing over and above their day job to make a difference within the the culture of our organization and that is meaning they're developing their own skills as well that they may not be able to enhance in their day jobs so it's a two-way situation and then that has that ripple effect to others within the organization it almost becomes infectious yeah um and it's not all the the fluffy stuff it's really again going back to the inclusion it's looking at our policies but involving the advocates to look at that is it working you know are our staff surveys working are we asking the right questions um you know is the environment is our aircon at the right temperature you know it's so broad because at the end of the day once you walk through that door at your organization you want to feel that sense of belonging and you're part of that family it shouldn't be oh gosh I've got to go to work which we do get that now and again but once you're there you know you actually feel comfortable and get on and do the best job you can and that's what it's about it's interesting um 
you remind me of something someone else said uh, the other day where they said um, we're really bad at closing the feedback loop um, about mm -hmm. some things and I think what you're saying about like going back and saying is it working mm -hmm. I think this area can be an area where people throw stuff at a wall quite yeah. often and just go oh well there you go we've done it we've got policies and look they're great and you know yeah. and they don't really interrogate is this really working for the people it intended to and is it is it affecting other people in a way that maybe isn't working um absolutely how how do you get people to be how do you get your group to get candid feedback because it's obviously i know i know that can be a real challenge it absolutely can. So what I've encouraged my groups to do is to talk about EDI within their own teams and encourage their teams to feedback. I mean, a whether we're as a, we as a group are doing the right things, but also what um, we're doing and feedback in, in into the group and get feedback from that. But staff surveys is a big thing, um, and what we we do now is we'll collate all that feedback from staff, and obviously it's anonymous, and then we'll set up an action plan, and that's led by our senior leadership team. So they take ownership of it, and it's monitored on a quarterly basis. So staff can then see that whatever they've said in that survey, it's being monitored and something is being done about it. Otherwise, the next time, if nothing's done, the next time the survey is done, then they'll think, well, why am I bothering to fill in this survey when nothing's happening? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, and I just really think the, the whole review process is so, so important. Now, interestingly enough, talking about um, the impact on, on feedback and so forth, for our policies and as part of the Code for Sport Governance, um, we are implementing equality impact assessments. So after every policy, an EIA has to be included in that. So you go through that policy and answer specific questions as to whether it's impacting a specific um, protected characteristics, whether it's disability, ethnic minorities. So it's really being scrutinised. Um, and, and that's proven to be quite interesting because it makes yeah. you stop and think, A, it, the EIA can be done after the policies have been implemented for, for years. But if you're developing a new policy, it, you can cross-reference and really identify, actually, is that sentence there going to impact a, a specific un, underrepresented group? So it, it almost challenges you as an individual or as a, as a department to really think this is just not a piece of paper and yeah. just a policy. You know, this is really interesting. Um, we were chatting to somebody uh, earlier on one of the other podcasts who talked about the need to crawl all over their processes and policies and then really sort of get into the, the sort of nooks and crannies of everything to check for um, the inclusive nature of what's in there. So so it's excellent to hear you um, sort of echoing that with, with that language as well. Um, with with those uh, sort of equality impact assessments, what types of things are you asking or, or what could um, maybe small organizations learn from what you're doing that would help them well, assess their... Well, it, it, you, can, you can break it down. I mean, ours is pretty simple. It would ask you, does this policy or anything in that impact um, anyone with a disability or someone from an LGBT, LGBT plus community? You go through it literally like that. So again, it makes yeah. you think, well has um append has as point five does that impact that particular group or any group yeah, in fact um and if it does then you'll need to really address it because if you look at your demographic of your organization that's going to impact someone 
It's yeah. just, it feels like it's really forcing, uh, forcing, encouraging, somewhere in between the two, um, people to be a little bit more thoughtful and less knee-jerk when Absolutely. they create policies. Absolutely. And actually say, hang on, hang on, yeah. what, are my un- what are my unintended consequences from this? Yeah, because no one intentionally goes out to discriminate. I mean, there's some people who do, um, but especially when it, we're looking at, at policies in itself, you write the policy for the good of the organisation. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if you really read between the lines, and it goes back to language, mm-hmm. you know, what language are we using? And and as I said at the very beginning, it's an opportunity for, for every organisation to hold up that mirror and say, you know, actually, have we thought about this from a different perspective? Um, is it going to impact Julie, who sat over there in the corner, if if we don't have yeah, blinds yeah. in the room, for example? I mean, that that's a real far fetched yeah. example, but do you know what I mean? You know, any decision that's made made at that board table, who is it impacting, and who are we trying to um, protect at the same time? Yeah, and I, I really like the, the you know what's coming out here in terms of some of the core skills needed to succeed in the space, being the people skills and the empathy and the ability to connect with people but at the same time the need to have that sort of procedural rigor and understanding and really look into and things critical and thinking right critical it's, thinking. it's a requirement yeah. to really sort of put your critical hat on and think hang on let me let me almost game this let me yeah. think about all the different things that could go on under this policy and try and sort of flash out what's the worst that could happen and how could it affect people. yeah it's a great absolutely and, and in all honesty you know we're all thriving to make sure that we have more diverse boards but it's not just about the individual, it's about the diversity of thought, their process, yeah. because everyone will have different backgrounds and, and bringing that to the table will have a different perspective altogether. So that's more important than actually looking at how many um, people from a BAME background around the table. It's about their diversity of thought and their experiences that they've had. Yeah, yeah I think... Um... So for those of you that aren't in sport, you may not know that um, sports had a significant challenge in trying to, um, it's done relatively well as a sector on increasing gender gender split in boards, but it's really struggled with people from black and minor, uh, minority ethnic communities on boards. And they've invested, UK Sport have partnered up with, funnily enough, the university I'm at and a professional recruitment agency to invest in trying to train up a huge number of people so that they can be board ready, so that they can be a step change. And I think um, I just, I've sat in a few board meetings in my time in the sports sector, not particularly NGBs, but yeah, we could do with some just people with different perspectives. Let's yeah. let's go with that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, okay, so we know that's a big challenge. Um, just, I know um, from what you've said and also from experience of working with you, you're very action oriented. It would be, would that be fair? That would be fair. Yeah. So I'm really interested to know because I know we have a lot of people uh, listening who um, are in real operational HR roles in their organisation, and they're like, sometimes it's hard to persuade the leaders. But what, what have been your biggest sort of successes? What initiatives have really worked the best for you? Uh, in your various roles? So I've been in the role now since January 2017 and me being me, I wanted to do everything in that first year. 
And someone pulled me aside and said, Donna, you need to slow down. We know you were a sprinter, but come on, this is taking a minute. Um, <laughs> I can, I can literally imagine someone saying that. <laughs> literally, yes. So I said, okay, right, let me scale this back. And it goes back to a bit of data, understanding what the organization looks like. So that first year, I focused pretty much on um, LGBT disability and gender, as you say, gender can be quite an easy conversation to have. And in our sport, obviously, we we aim to be gender equal um, across the across the piece. And with the Code for Sport Governance, thirty percent women on boards. That's what we need to achieve. At least that. So it's the other areas that we need to look at. Um, so I guess in terms of the mad things that I've done, I say the mad things, it, I, I just literally leap in. And it's about in a, being innovative and thinking outside the box that's going to excite people. And I probably had that approach because of my athletics background. I, hate, I, I wasn't a great fan of training, but it had to be fun for me. Um, and anything that I deliver has to involve food All right. um, because that's always a, a grab grabber for people. Wherever there's free food, people will be there yeah. um, and can have those open conversations as well. But uh, what we implemented, and I'll just name a couple of things, um, was the non-binary guidelines for our road race organisers. Um, now, for athletics, it's just male and female um, and at the elite level, it is just male and female, but domestically we could pretty much do what we like as, as an NGB. So we implemented those guidelines to encourage more participation and allow um, anyone who doesn't self-identify as male or female to participate in road races. Um, and in, you know, to have that in place, we'd never done something like that before. And, and, and to be fair, Scottish athletics led the way in that space. But it just opens it up. Whether people take it up is not the point. It's an opportunity. It is about having those equal opportunities. Um, and the, I guess the biggest project that I delivered was um, the coach project, which uh, when I first came on into post, uh, because a lot of people knew me as Donna the athlete, um, I, I was spoken to quite a fair bit in terms of, you know, we need to do more for coaches, especially those from a BAME background. What are we doing? There's not enough recognition. So I took a step back and I thought at the time my, my coach had uh, passed away a few years prior to that. And I actually held the mirror up to myself and thought, you know, all those years and the time and effort that he put into coaching me, with no real thanks, you know, I'd say, oh, thanks, coach, if I, when I made the Olympics, but it wasn't made a big deal. It was just a given. But beyond just being a coach, he was also my psychologist, my nutritionist, my dad, my best friend. So those skills you don't learn. You don't go to college and learn those. But to show that he had such a vast skill set just made me think we need to recognize this in some way. So I teamed up with um, a creative director and a photographer and we literally went round the UK to showcase coaches from a BAME background, right from grassroots up to elite level to show and highlight the unique relationship between coach and athlete and what relationship that means, the collaboration, the trust, the respect, all what EDNI means um, and through photography. So that project, which I was aiming just to last a year, uh, went on for two years, started off uh, really small with just 10 coaches and eventually went to 32 coaches. 
and finally ended up in the House of Parliament because they wanted it there. Um, and also at City Hall had it as well. So it toured around the UK, but the visibility and the traction that got for the coaches was just immense. Uh, and the, again, the conversations that between the NGB and the coaches, which hadn't happened before. So it was a different angle, but again, it, it was an opportunity for the coaches to meet with the NGB and have those fundamental conversations as to what we could do better as an NGB for them. It's it's funny. I'm um I'm having I'm having flashbacks because uh, <laughs> you and I and uh, was it David? We had a we had a phone yes. conversation right at the beginning when you told me what you were doing. And I, yeah. uh, as I always am when people do slightly unusual things in the sports sector, <laughs> I was really excited. But I was also like I, I, I like I'm excited. I don't see how this is going to make a difference. I don't get it. And I went yeah. to the I went to the first. Uh, showing, which was, you're right, quite small. It was lovely, yeah. don't get me wrong. And it was food, everyone, just to clarify, <laughs> it was definitely food. But it was, it was quite a small thing. And it was really emotional because yeah. there were a lot of the people who loved those coaches and who cared about them and who had been coached by them and the coaches were there themselves, some of them. But I, every time I saw Donna for about six months afterwards, she'd add on to the end of the conversation, oh, and the exhibition's going to the mayor's office or, oh, and it's going to Birmingham. Like I turned up in Birmingham for a bit of work and it, the exhibition, like there was a, a guy unloading the canvases. Yeah. And um, I guess I'm really glad you brought that one up actually, because I think there's a lesson in it for every, all of us who work in this kind of space of creating change. Um, I couldn't see at the beginning how a photography project was going to make a massive, I thought it was a lovely thing to do. I think it's great. I don't see how the change. And then I saw the pride in the senior leaders of those organizations and of the staff and of the athletes in seeing their black uh, and minority ethnic coaches celebrated with these beautiful images mm. and in places that are really important to this country. Mm -hmm. And it yeah. was, it, I, I'm not afraid to admit it was, I mean, it just goes, if you want to talk about leap of faith to people who want to take a small chance, I think that's a really good yeah, example yeah. of just try something. Yeah. What's the yeah. worst that could happen? Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's like a social change project at almost a national level, the way it's been described. It sounds... Definitely. It, it, and what, what a yeah. great positive thing off the back of that is Absolutely. other sports want to do the same. Yeah. To showcase their coaches within their own sports. And I think that, to me, means a lot more than the project that I delivered because it's Great. wider, it's sharing, it's recognition, again, which is what diversity inclusion is all about. It's not about money. No, it's just no, no. about recognition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think on a very straightforward level as well, I think there were so many people in the sport who, if you had asked them, they probably wouldn't have been able to name some of those coaches mm -hmm. because bear in mind, coaches predominantly are still volunteers in, in yes. athletics, even at the top Olympic level. Uh, there's a few that are paid, but it's not a lot of them. And um, I think there's a really interesting thing about seeing that number of images in one place of that many different people looking after that many well-known athletes who've performed at a high level. And kind of there were other people in the organization who went, and, I, and there's one person in particular I know who's quite influential um, he doesn't work for the organization, but he's quite an influential volunteer. And he, he said to me, he said, oh, he said, I'd never really noticed that. And because, because a sport Incredible. does tend to really think about performance and athletes yeah, and the, yeah, and the athlete is the center. They don't tend to think about the person coaching mm -hmm. and you could just see him looking around going, wow. Yeah, they are, they are all definitely not white yeah. and they are all really successful yeah, coaches. And you could really see him thinking about that and what that meant for our, our reputation, uh, our, 
who is represented at yeah. a at a sort of higher level in the organisation as volunteers. For sure. Well, thank you for supporting anyway. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just glad I was wrong. And I like it. It's really lovely when you're shown to be so wrong. Yeah. Like it's a really lovely learning experience. And now I tell everyone. So I'm, I'm funnily enough, I'm coaching someone at the moment who wants to get into a role like yours one day and okay. uh, wants to transition from what they're doing at the moment. And uh, that was the exact example I got. Oh, brilliant. That's why my ears were burning. <laughs> so, so it sounds like you've had some real successes. Um, yeah. I guess on that note, actually, um, I think it'd be really useful. Um, I quite often meet people who have spent some time working in an industry and they've come to realize they're more interested in this space than maybe their original job. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone was trying to make the move into the this space for a role, what 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 would you suggest they do? What is the experience they could get? What are the people they should be talking to? What what can they learn? Where can they go to? Yeah, can they do stuff on the side of their desk? Yeah, is that, can they... yeah. Can they do stuff on the side of their desk, or could they do some volunteering or something? Absolutely. Um, first and foremost, I'd say just go for it. Um, you never know until you, you make that, again, that leap of faith. Um, for me, it's about, it's navigating, it, it's being smart, it's following your heart almost. I, I didn't have a plan. What I did start by doing, it was just networking and um, connecting with people who are in that space and learning m- myself. I'm still learning, you know, things change legislation wise all the time. So I'm learning every single day. I'm learning from different people still. And I don't have the answers all the time, but it is about what's in your heart and knowing what's right and the right thing to do. And if you're walking down the road and, and you know, uh, God forbid, if this happens and you you see someone um, just about to get their bag snatched, you're not going to not do anything. You don't turn a blind eye because that's not the right thing to do. You go and help. So it is following your gut instinct. Usually it's right. I'd say 99.9% of the time, my gut feeling is right. And I will go with that. And I'm, I'm told that, you know, I talk with passion because I am passionate about this. and I'm passionate about people. I'm passionate about making people feel good about themselves. And you know, for, for anyone wanting to get into it, it it's self-fulfilling, absolutely. Um, it is hard work because, you know, you're trying to engage with different people all the time. So you, you have to be on it. But because you're passionate about something, it's not just a job. It doesn't seem as painful if it was just a job. You get your, you get your pay every, every month and it's all good. And just as a, as a tip, it's not a nine to five job either. It's around the clock job because you're always thinking about what next what's my next move and again because legislation conversations you wake up in the morning and something's happened on the tv linked with edni and you think oh actually that's something that we need to look at within our organization but at the same time don't or or um not not don't it's more understanding that you can't do everything you can't fix everything and this is why a support network is so important to galvanize people who are on the same page as you to help with that stronger message wow so it's really not always about having the big budget sometimes it really is just about the people yeah absolutely people are people people work better with people um budgets money money is great absolutely you can do a lot more but if you're not engaged and then there's no point you know you just it's just a just a, a tick box it becomes a tick box exercise if it's just about yeah. money okay 
that's quite a lot of uh i feel like that's a lot of food for thought yeah um sorry i probably spoke no, too long there <laughs> not at all um thank you for sharing um your experiences um and also at the end your bit of advice that's really really helpful yeah um and uh many thanks for joining us yeah that was excellent oh thank you thank you so much right so here here we are i'm afraid you're back with us now after that fun chat with donna it was really exciting wasn't it yeah i really like how practical and pragmatic she is about all this stuff and clearly passionate and motivated and warm and enthusiastic about what she's doing as well i think that's really comes across yeah um I, I don't know if you can imagine from what she sounded like, but if you imagine trying to say no to Donna, that is a somewhat challenging thing yeah, to yeah, get yeah, away yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're not going to run away from her either, really, let's be honest, because she'd catch you. Yes. Oh, good. Po- oh, good. Do you see? I like that joke. Oh, oh, I like yes, that joke. Yes, yes. Yeah, she would. She really would catch you as well. <laughs> um, so, no, but I think my favourite thing um, in all of that was her, this, the, the reference a few times to taking a leap of faith in what you try and do. Um, I'm all for data and information and gathering, having really good conversations, but I also think sometimes you just have to take a punt on some activities, um, particularly if they're low risk and they're um, maybe just trying something a little bit different. And uh, she may not be a long jumper, but her leap of faith seemed to have paid off. Um, I think your jacket's on the side there. Do you want me to call get, you a taxi? I'll, or I'll get my coat. You're going to get, yeah, okay, that's good. Not the comedian in the group. <laughs> I think that's great. Um, okay, so for me, what are some takeaways? I had a couple of them. One of them, I, I liked the, the sort of creativity that she seems to bring to the range of things she's doing in, in this space. I think that's really good between, um, you know, the activities she's doing actually in work and then the, the, the coach's photography. I thought that was excellent as well. And those are both creative ways um, that are sort of passion-driven ways to drive change, which I thought were excellent. Um, and another thing that struck me was the uh, equality impact assessment, that EIA mm. piece. I think that's just a really good exercise you can do to review and update your policies and processes to, to consider the impact you're having within your organisation. So I thought that was excellent. Yeah, I think I think quite possibly when everyone's listened to the entire series, which I'm sure they will. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. The number of times that the concept of crawling all over your policies has come up and that idea yeah. of being forensic about what could happen and what might happen yeah. and what you don't want to happen um, with regards to policies and, and strategies, I think is huge. Yeah. Great. Well, there's some good takeaways there. Brilliant. Well, we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.